The following audio is from Sacred City Church. For more information, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Good morning. My name is Justin. I'm the pastor here at Sacred City Church, so I want to welcome you if you are here for the first time. Uh, We are um, just about a two-year-old church. Um, July, two years ago, we planted our first missional community that's like a little house church. And that has multiplied to now we have four missional communities, the fifth one soon to be launched in the coming weeks. Um, We've had our gathering here this morning. We just want to welcome you. We are a church plant from the Acts 29 network, and we are really thrilled that you're worshiping with us this morning. Um, We are here for one purpose, and that's the glory of God. We believe everything starts with the glory of God in and of himself and not with us. And we're just here as responders and people who get to partake in the glorious grace that he offers us. Um, I want to take a moment really quick just to do um, one announcement. We have this Wednesday, men, we voted, if you remember, or Thursday morning, we voted. Uh, we don't have manhood, uh, authentic manhood this Thursday morning. We're pushing it back one week because it's the 4th of July and everybody wanted to sleep in. All right? Let's just be honest. There was no spiritual reason. That's why. Okay? We wanted to get some extra sleep. So we p- we'll pick it back up. Next week on Thursday, um, guys, I am really excited because um, about a year ago, um, God has God has been really gracious to us as a young church. I, mean, I, I got to go to the Acts 29 Lead Pastors Retreat um, this week in, in um, California, and I was talking to a lot of men. And when you're in stuff, you don't really see the blessings of it. Like when you're church planning, it's really hard. You know, you can't see the forest for the trees. Uh, There's a lot of pain, a lot of hurt, and just a lot of just difficulty. It's hard ground. But when I got to share the story of Sacred City, I got to tell them about what's going on. So many guys were really encouraged and just kind of spoke into my life and just said, man, that's God's doing a great work. And I just kind of forget that, that in the first um, year and a half of us being a church, that we've got to baptize over 35 people into the community of faith and into the arms of Jesus. It's been phenomenal, right? But one of the things that happens is when all of that, when that new growth comes in, uh, about a year ago, it felt a little bit like Lord of the Flies. Now, if you've, ever, if you've read the book, you know, the, I mean, like all the little boys on the island, no leadership, right? Like that's kind of what it felt like. We had all these new converts, all these young Christians, really exciting. And heresy is bred in that, those grounds, right? Like, because nobody really knows their Bible that well, because they're all brand new. And I went before the Lord and I said, Father, I need some, I need some more men. I need some guys that know their Bible, guys that love Jesus, guys that know doctrine. And God has very rarely answered my prayers very quickly, but literally uh, within a few weeks, God sent uh, this young man or my brother who's about to preach this morning. And uh, it's, his name's Dr. Casey Shutt. And he would not want me to do this, but I'm going to do it anyways. Um, Casey, Oklahoma, right? Yeah, Oklahoma. He's from. He went to the University of Oklahoma. Then from there, he went to seminary at Gordon Conwell, and from there, he went to Durham University. Um, I think it's in England. Is that right? In England, uh, one of the most prestigious schools uh, around in the in the world. I'm just going to tell you that. And he got his doctorate in theology. So he, God has answered our prayer. God has sent some men. Um, I got to present them before you last week. He's one of our um, elder candidates for this year. So I'm just, he's been a blessing to my heart. He's been a, like, a, like a brother to me this past year. It's been um, great to just be in fight club with him, be in missional community with him, uh, be able to bounce things off him. And now uh, I'm excited that he's going to bring the word of God to you this morning. So I'm praying that we all uh, would have ears that can hear. 
that we, Jesus talks a lot about guys that can't have ears, but they can't actually hear what the Spirit is saying. So I'm praying this morning that we would all have ears that, that can hear what the Spirit is saying. Because listen, there's a way, and if you grew up in church, I'm just going to let you know, you're probably really good at listening, but not hearing what the Spirit is saying. And this is how you know. If you're going, you know what? My freaking wife needs to hear this. I'm glad he's preaching on that. You're looking down at your kids going, did you hear that? Did you hear that? Like, if you're listening for other people, then you've trained yourself to listen, but not to hear what the Spirit is saying. Okay? And I know it's really tough. You know, that person in your missional community, when the preacher starts preaching, and you're like, oh, mm -hmm, I hope he gets it. You're looking at him like, right, he read your mail this week. Now, that's listening, but not hearing. So I want us to hear what the Spirit is saying. I want us to hear, how, how can I learn from this? How can I grow? What is God trying to say to me in this? How can this help me be a better disciple? How can this make disciples who make disciples? How can this help me be a missionary on, on mission to my city, my workplace, my missional community, my neighborhood? And I want us to hear with that this morning. Is that cool? All right. So now um, let's stand up. For the reading of God's word, it's a, it's a long, it's not that long of a chapter, but it's a, it's a pretty long chapter. So if we're, there she is right there. All right, go ahead, Leah. Hear the word of the Lord from the book of Genesis 39, 1 through 23. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ish, who had brought them down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in his house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in his house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as I heard, he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, 
The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife had spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I've had a cold for a couple of months now, kind of the mileage on this cold, I'm, 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 lo- I'm running out of it, but my voice every once in a while, it comes and goes. So just, just a warning there. I also don't have glasses on today. I normally have kind of big Clark Kent style glasses and several people said, you don't, you don't have glasses on today. And Justin even said, you just didn't want to see the crowd, did you? And that's not true. I'm not afraid of you guys. I have contacts in, so we're trying a new pair. I went to the eye doctor recently. Well, welcome. We um, are a church that is that realizes that we do not have it together, but we serve a Messiah and a Savior who does. So, if you came to here thinking you came here today thinking, you know, I have no, I have no reason to be in a church. I should not be in a church. Church is not for me. I've got good news for you. You actually are are more fit than you realize to be here. Because the one prerequisite to the Christian life is that we recognize our need for Christ. So, welcome, if if you're a guest. Um, Let's pray, and then we'll jump into this text. Father, we need your help in so many ways, more than we even realize. And as Justin uh, said just a moment ago, we ask that you would help us hear uh, your word. The word, the Hebrew Shema. It means not just, not just listening, not just hearing it, but actually acting upon it. That it would seep down to the core of who we are. And the only way your word does that is if your spirit pounds it into us and delivers it into us. And so we ask that that would happen. I need your help uh, speaking. I pray that you would empower me and I pray that you'd help those in the audience to hear via your spirit. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. It's been said that the church doesn't talk enough about sex. The church is just too hush-hush on the topic. And if if that's the case, it's not because the Bible doesn't talk about it. And you're probably keenly aware of that as we've been working our way through Genesis. Uh, You've probably had, like myself, you've had these moments where you think, is that really in the Bible? And it is. And just last week in chapter 38, we talked about Judah his sexual sins, as well as his own uh, son's sexual sins. In fact, Moses, who wrote the book of Genesis, has strategically placed chapter 38 about Judah and his sexual problems and sins right next to chapter 39 as a way to kind of compare. Chapter 38 is an example of what not to do when it comes to sexual morality. Chapter 39, we get a little picture of 
uh, sexual triumph, right? Joseph overcomes this temptation that comes his way. And it's a huge deal that Joseph does this. Because if you, if you remember, Joseph does not come from a great pedigree when it comes to sexual purity. His great-grandpa, Abraham, uh, regularly passed his wife, Sarah, over to other men, sometimes in exchange for lots of wealth, as he did in Egypt. Uh, Joseph's father, Jacob, spent years working for his wife, Rachel, because of what he saw, what he, his, what he saw in her. And he, and he was in the process duped by his father-in-law. And then, of course, Joseph's brother, Judah, had his sexual problems that we discussed last week. And a couple of months ago, Justin gave this, this illustration that has really stuck with me. Do I need to do anything? I feel a little... Pull it back. Okay. Not used to the Britney mic, as they say. Um, a couple of months ago, Justin gave this illustration of an acorn that somehow it fell into the coffin of, a, of an old Christian saint. And this coffin was covered with this six-inch thick limestone slab. And, and to this day, there's a tree growing out of that limestone. Somehow, the acorn busted through that limestone slab. And now you've got this tree growing. And right around it is this limestone slab. And that, that is a metaphor for the, for the Christian life, for Christian growth. Because Christian growth is really impossible apart from the Spirit. It's impossible. And the pattern of sexual deviance that has marked Joseph's lineage is about to break. And so we're going to see today the acorn crack the limestone with regard to the sexual pattern that has marked Joseph's family. And maybe you feel this morning as though breaking free from sexual sin is as difficult as an acorn busting through a six-inch limestone slab. But I'm here to tell you today that it is possible to break free from sexual sin. And what I want to do today is simply answer two questions. What is lust and how do you flee from it? But before we actually jump into chapter 39, we're going to do a little bit of a review. We're in the book of Genesis Uh, The entire Joseph story actually takes a pretty big chunk of Genesis. But the book of Genesis is about beginnings. In fact, that's what it comes from the Greek word beginnings. And it's about two different beginnings. There's creation where God, and and in fact, here's one way to think about it. You could divide the, really the whole Bible into these parts. Genesis 1 through 11 describes the problem. And then Genesis chapter 12, all the way through Revelation, explains the solution. But in those first 11 chapters, God creates a great world, a perfect world. It's very good. He creates Adam and Eve, and he plops them in the middle of this garden. And this garden and and their lives are marked by universal flourishing. Every direction they look, there's peace. And then, then, excuse me, this is why I brought the tea. And then, through disobedience, by eating the fruit, Adam and Eve bring about an unraveling of this order and of this peace. And those first 11 chapters of Genesis show us what happens when sin begins to seep down into the world. And it's not a pretty picture. But then in chapter 12, God starts this plan 
of a new creation, right? He's, he's going to create a new people and he's going to restore what was lost in that creation. And, and it's interesting, the couple that he chooses to do that, to do that with it's Abraham and Sarah, they're old and they're barren. Sarah's womb, it makes it very clear. It was barren. It could not bear children. And just as God created that first creation ex nihilo, right out of nothing, he chooses to create a new people out of a, out of a womb that has nothing. There's no life in it. And he miraculously provides them with their biological son, Isaac. And so actually, if you think about it, every ethnic Jew is kind of a walking miracle. Um, and so Isaac then has Jacob and Joseph is Jacob's uh, son. He's one of Jacob's 12 sons. And we learned a couple of weeks ago that Joseph is a brash young brother um, that, that has these dreams and he's, and he's pretty proud of these dreams where his, uh, older brothers are serving him and he tells them about this. And he also has this cloak that's special and Joseph sort of flaunts that cloak. Now it's not a good recipe for good sibling relations and, uh, Joseph's brothers hate him. And this becomes apparent when Jacob sends Joseph out to retrieve his brothers from the field. They see him coming and they say, this is our opportunity. Let's kill Joseph. And then one of them says, actually, let's, that's going a little too far. Let's not kill him. Let's just sell him as a slave. That's better, right? And so they do that. And they, they bloody up the cloak uh, that was of such great value to Joseph and even, even Jacob. And they take it back to Jacob and say, look, your son was killed. By an animal, here's his bloody cloak as evidence. And so that's where, we, that's where we left Joseph. And this morning, we find Joseph in Egypt serving Potiphar. The name Potiphar literally means gift of Ra, and Ra was the sun god. Potiphar was, a, was an extremely powerful man, and he's living in, in a powerful land, right? The most powerful land at the time, Egypt. He's described as the, as, a cap, as the captain of the guard, but it's not, it's not exactly clear what that means. But what we do know is that he was in charge of a lot of people. And Joseph has landed actually a pretty nice gig, at least as far as slavery goes. Because not only is he working in this powerful land and he's working for a powerful man, but he's working in the house, right? He's not out in the field. He's working in the house. And he, he also has a lot of responsibility. Everything that this wealthy man owns is in Joseph's charge. It's under Joseph's responsibility. So while Joseph has had some hard knocks, God is with him. In fact, that phrase, the Lord was with Joseph, really anchors the entire passage. In this Joseph narrative, we don't, God's not showing up a lot, really at all. When you compare it to with Abraham and Jacob, you know, he wrestles Jacob he appears to Abraham and eats dinner with the messengers of the Lord, eat with, with Abraham. He's regularly appearing. There's these theophanies, right? These appearances of God. But those go away with Joseph. But just because God isn't tangibly present, it doesn't mean that he's not with Joseph. And maybe that's where you are this morning. Maybe, maybe you feel as though God is far removed from your life. Well, he's, he's with Joseph and uh, and he's with us as well. We learn, <clears throat> excuse me, 
that Joseph has his mom's good looks. He's described in the, in the same way that his mom was described, having a nice body and a nice face. And Potiphar's wife casts her gaze upon Joseph. She lusts longingly for him and persistently pursues him. And this brings us to question number one. What is lust? Lust is an excessive desire for something. It's an excessive desire for, for something, anything. It doesn't have to be sexual, but lust, broadly speaking, an excessive desire for something. To lust is to allow your desires to go just completely out of whack. And we, we live in a culture that balks at the idea that your desires could somehow lead you astray or not, or not worth trusting. Right? The, the, the message that we repeatedly hear is just follow your heart. Follow your desires. You know, your desires are, are a compass to help you navigate through, your, through, through life. But biblical Christianity says the heart is deceitful above all things. And I, I think experience tells us this as well. Just last week I was in Atlanta in my favorite Mexican restaurant. There's, one, there's, there's a location in Atlanta. They're all in Texas and then there's one that somehow... They opened in Atlanta, so I had to go, and I went there twice in the short four days that I was there. Both times, and this happens every time I go to Mexican restaurants, my desires lead me astray. I eat way, way too much food. And an hour after the meal, I know it's coming, but I still just keep eating, and I'm thinking, why did I do that? Our desires, they can lead us astray. When we talk about lust, though, this morning, we're going to be talking about the sexual variety. What has captured Potiphar's wife? And I probably don't have to spend a lot of time making the case that, that this is a particular struggle for us in our own day. I mean, of course, people have always struggled with lust, but it's especially fierce. The struggle is today. And I think we could root the struggle to a couple of things. And these may seem odd at first, but I'll try to explain it. Cars and cameras. Two little technological developments have really altered this problem of lust. Cars and cameras. But first I'll talk about cameras. Um, Actually, yeah, we'll jump into cameras here. Oliver Wendell Holmes, he was an essayist, a writer, poet. I think he even was a medical doctor. Kind of did a little bit of everything. But when the, this is in the 1800s, when the, when, the cam, when the photography came out, he wrote an essay and kind of explored what this would do to humanity. It was a huge deal to be able to freeze a moment in time. And he wrote, and this is from a book called Fit Bodies, Fat Minds by Os Guinness. He says that photography created an image with a memory. He said that the time was coming when the image would become more important than the object, right? The image would become more important than the object itself and would in fact make the object disposable. The time was coming when men would hunt all curious, beautiful, grand objects as they hunt cattle in South America for their skins and leave the carcasses as of little worth. So way back in 1859, Holmes is saying that the photography is going to bring about a time where the image becomes more important than the object itself. About 10 years ago, I remember Drew Barrymore being interviewed 
And there, she was talking about how dissatisfied she was with the way that she looks. And the interviewer is, is, is finding this hard to believe. And it's saying, but, but look at all these beautiful pictures of you. They had like a little photo shoot of her. But look at how beautiful you are in these pictures. And she said, yeah, but that's not me. I don't look like that. Right? The image of Drew Barrymore, the object Barrymore, was feeling crushed under the weight of her image. How many husbands and even wives neglect the, live, the living, breathing, flesh and blood spouse sleeping in, in the bedroom next door because they're entranced by the glow of the computer screen and they're just scrolling through an endless supply of sexually explicit material, right? The image trumps the object. And it's even neurological. Uh, Joe Carter, who... Um, he writes for the Gospel Coalition. There's, he has a blog on, the, on their website. But he was summarizing the, the thoughts of William Struthers, a psychologist. And he says, and here's why it's neurolo- neurological. He says, dopamine surges when a person is exposed to new stimuli. Particularly if it's sexual. Or when a stimuli is more arousing than anticipated. Because erotic imagery triggers more dopamine than sex with a familiar partner, exposure to pornography leads to arousal addiction and teaches the brain to prefer the image and become less satisfied with real-life sexual partners. Okay, so that's, that's a little bit of what the camera has done. That was probably pretty obvious. But also the car has affected um, the current climate with regards to lust. There's a guy, I'm taking some of these thoughts from an article on, on the automobile by a guy named Steve Gordon. But he says, you know, when you're moving down the street at six miles per hour on a horse, um, advertisements can be very much text-driven. You can write a lot and persuade people through that because they've just got time to look at it. But when you start moving down the road at 40 miles per hour or even 25 miles per hour, you know, in the early days, um, you, you don't have time to read advertisements. So advertisers adjust and they start making the, the advertisements more image driven. Of course, the camera helps with this, right? And it's not long before they realize, you know what? Sex sells. So let's start using sex appeal. Even, even in the early 1900s, I'm not talking, I mean, we're, it's kind of in our face now, but even back in the early 1900s using sex appeal in order to uh, persuade people to buy their products. And so that development, the car has completely rearranged the visual landscape that we see around us. And both the camera and the car have pushed this natural tendency to lust further and further into the center of our lives. And in this world, it's no surprise why the Christian sex, sexual standard seems on the rigid side. And C.S. Lewis felt this way. He called the Christian sex ethic the most unpopular of all. He says, and here's what it is, by the way, in in, in Lewis's words, either marriage with complete faithfulness to, to your partner or else total abstinence. Now, this is so difficult and contrary to our instincts that obviously either Christianity is wrong or our sexual instincts as they are as they now are have gone wrong 
And of course, Lewis, being a Christian, believed that our sexual instincts had gone wrong. And he illustrates it in kind of a fun way. He kind of compared, he compares the sexual appetite to food. And he says, and he says this, you can get a large audience together for a striptease act. That is to watch a girl undress on, on the stage. Now, suppose you come to a country where you could fill a theater by simply bringing a covered plate onto the stage and then slowly lifting the cover so as to let everyone see just before the lights went out that it contained a mutton chop or a bit of bacon. Would you not think in that country something had gone wrong with the appetite for food? And would not anyone who had grown up in a different world think there was something equally queer about the state of the sex instinct among us? So here's, here's the problem with lust. It strips from sex the loving relational quality that, that is just inextricably bound to sex. It strips that. Potiphar's wife, she doesn't care for Joseph at all. In fact, she, we, we learned she hates Joseph. How do we know that? Well, she, she accuses him of rape after this whole thing happens. And in ancient Egypt, just to be accused of rape, it was a death sentence. Um, Joseph would have been condemned to death for that. The Old Testament euphemism for sex is to know. You know, Abraham knew his wife. And that, that gets that is connected to this idea of, of the relational quality that is with sex. I think... Notwithstanding Potiphar's wife, I, th- I think women have a better sense of this than men. There's a book called Taking Our Sexual Differences Seriously by Steve Rhodes. And it talks about the differences between male and female just across the board. And it's interesting that a book like this has to be written because he's, he's targeting an audience that believes that all differences between male and female are just kind of a social construct. Um, there's not, they're not real biological differences. Um, and so he's saying, yes, there are. And he, he, he says, you see it even from birth, right? Um, we, we noticed it in our own home. We have an older daughter and then a younger son that's three years younger. And from the day that he was born, we could just tell he was a boy. I mean, he just did things differently. Um, and newborns in the nursery, according to this Rhodes book, they study newborn babies and and they found that in the nursery when a baby started crying all the other babies start crying with it it's contagious but the girl babies cried a lot longer than the boys and they think that has to do with that the girls just have a bigger capacity to empathize with their fellow baby crying baby (laughs) but the differences extend to sexuality Rhodes book said that women women after prolonged promiscuity Study after study shows they, they tend to feel worthless and ashamed. Um, and there was another study done on a college campus that points to the difference as well. There was an, a member of the opposite sex, an attractive member of the opposite sex, a complete stranger, would approach someone of the opposite sex and propose, say, well, let's spend the night together. And they did that with men and women. And of the men that were proposed... 75% agreed to the proposal. Of the, of the women that were proposed to, there, can you think of what the percentage was? Zero. None of the women took that proposal. So that, that shows us that women, at least on some level, understand that sex is relational in a way that men don't. 
But men, men realize it too. Men realize it too. Why is it that a man will stay up all night viewing pornography? And by the way, I'm not implying that only men struggle with pornography. But I do think it's a, it's a bigger problem among men. But why is it that men stay up all night looking at pornography? Because there's the hope that just one more picture, one more image, one more whatever will provide what they're looking for. But it won't. What the man is looking for is more than just an image. He's looking for a relationship, something that a two-dimensional image will, will never provide. And by the way, do you know what married people do after they make love? They sleep. They go to sleep. They rest. There's rest after that. After pornography, there's not rest. There's, there's anxiousness. Um, there's not rest. Lust is a lie. And by the way, this is, it's, it's actually the fact that it never satisfies is the reason it's such a big business to begin with. Right? They're targeting this strong desire and they're delivering a product that will never bring fulfillment. And so people just keep chasing it and they chase it addictively. Lust is a lie because it violently strips sex of this relational quality. It takes the essence of it and you're left with just a carcass of the thing. Tim Keller says that lust is, is pleasure without a person. The person is just a tool, just a thing that supplies the pleasure. In lust, Keller says, the person is negotiable. The pleasure is the non-negotiable. In love, the pleasure is the negotiable, and the person is the non-negotiable. Proper sex must be bound to covenantal lifelong union marriage but that feels so unnatural right at least that's what lewis thought again keller has this great excerpt from his book on marriage and he says that he explains how sex most naturally takes place in the context of marriage he says if sex is a method that god invented to do whole life entrustment and self-giving It should not surprise us that sex makes us feel deeply connected to the other person. Even when used wrongly. Unless you deliberately disable it or through practice you numb the original impulse. Sex makes you feel personally interwoven and joined to another human being. As you are literally physically joined. In the midst of sexual passion, you naturally want to say extravagant things such as, I'll always love you. Even if you're not legally married, you may find yourself quickly feeling marriage-like ties. So lust, if we look at it deeply, it's not natural. It does not correspond with the reality of what sex is. Joseph understands this. And that brings us to the second question that I want to look at. And that is, how do we flee from lust? How do we flee from lust? Joseph is getting these repeated appeals to sleep with Potiphar's wife. And she's not, it's interesting. She's not saying lie. You normally in the, in the Hebrew Bible, you would see them say lie with me. And the translation may have, I think it probably said lie with me, but actually the Hebrew is a little bit different. She says lie beside me, right? It's just kind of a subtle, let's just spoon or snuggle. (laughs) It's, it's. It's insidious. And that's how lust comes at us, right? We're not even looking for it. 
And yet it, it's, it comes. You may be at the grocery store just trying to buy milk and bread, and then boom, it confronts you. It's insidious. So how do we respond? Joseph, recognizing the covenant made between Potiphar and his wife, he doesn't want to in- interfere with that. He, he, he understands the, the sanctity of the mar- marriage bond, and he says, I don't want to get in between you two. But even more deeply, Joseph avoids her advance because it would be sinning against God. This recognition happens because, as I I said earlier, the Lord is with Joseph. It's that phrase that anchors the passage. The Lord is with Joseph. Remember, as we've seen so many of these Old Testament characters stumble and fumble their way through life, the only way that Joseph can even overcome this in the first place is that the Lord is with him, strengthening him, enabling him to resist uh, these temptations. Here's what's so tragic about sexual sin. It trivializes humans who are image bearers of God. But it also, the sexual relationship is actually a picture of the love that Christ has with the church. In fact, you could, from the New Testament, you see that all over the place. And you could even make the case that God knew about Jesus and the plan he had with the church. And he created sex as a picture of that. In other words, Christ and the church came first, not, oh, well, we've got sex. Well, that's a nice little way to, you know, compare the, the, the love of Christ for the church. No, Christ and the church came first. And so the human sexuality is a picture of Christ's love for the church. And, to, and sexual immorality distorts that picture. For Joseph... Sexual sin, the pleasure of Potiphar's wife, stands in the way of the pleasure of God. The pleasure that God experiences within himself. No matter how pleasurable sexual sin may be and how persistently it might come our way, it does not amount to the pleasure that is found in Christ. And this is how we overcome sexual temptation. This is how Joseph does it. This is how we do it. We seek a deeper pleasure. All the pleasures of this world are a faint shadow of the pleasure that God experiences with himself, within himself. Um, you know, God created all of these wonderful things that we enjoy from papacitos to sex to whatever it is, a beautiful day outside, a picnic, a boating trip, whatever it is. It's all created by God. God gave us all these pleasure receptors. They're all out of whack, but they're there, and they were given by God. And the reason he did is because it just sort of overflows from who he, from who he is. His creation just kind of overflowed from the delight and joy that he experiences within himself, within the Trinity. Um, Fred Sanders calls the Trinity the holy, happy land, the holy and happy land, right? They, within, God within himself is fully satisfied as the Father, the Son, and the, and the Spirit, lovingly serve one another, the relationship flourishes. The relationship flourishes. And I find it interesting that God, theologians have talked about when, 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 a, when a married couple, for example, has sex, there's a two in oneness, or, you know, two shall become one. We, we get that. But not only that, assuming that the, the relationship reaches its goal, its telos, there's a, there's a baby in there as well. There's a three-in-oneness to the sexual relationship. And the joy and delight that is experienced in that covenantal relationship 
is maybe the closest thing we can get to experiencing the joy that is found within the triune God. Let me try to illustrate this. I'm, I'm kind of, I feel like I'm, we're, it's like a big plane just kind of slowly trying to land here, but we're, we're, I'm moving in a direction. And let me, let me try to illustrate this with um, an example from Sam Storms, who's a pastor um, in Oklahoma. He, uh, he's also he's an Acts 29 pastor. Um, he's really into Greek mythology. I'm not at all. So this is story is taken from Greek mythology. If you're a classics major and you think, well, he totally butchered that. I'm sorry. I might do it. But the point of the story is going to get across. Okay. So Odysseus is a leader of a pack of uh, Greek warriors. And they're out and they're doing their battle. And uh, they sa- are sailing back home. And on their way back home, they go past this island of the sirens. And the sirens are these beautiful creatures. They, they present themselves as beautiful creatures, beautiful women, actually. And they sing these beautiful songs and they woo sailors at sea. But actually, they're not beautiful women. They're flesh-eating monsters, basically. And once the men arrive, they destroy them. They gobble them up. Now, Odysseus knows this. He knows the danger of these sirens. So, he says to his men, sailors, put wax in your ears so you can't hear their music. We're going to blindfold your eyes and we're just going to row as fast as we can while we're going past the island of the sirens. And Odysseus says, you know what? I think I kind of want to hear this music that's so good. So, he ties himself to the mast of the boat. He doesn't put on the blindfolds or the wax. And uh, they go and they, they can hear the music. Odysseus can hear the music and he's, he he begins to scream and try to get himself out from the ties and say, we've got to stop. We've got to stop. It's too beautiful. And he's yelling at his men, but his men can't, one, they can't see him and they can't hear him because of the wax. And so they sail uh, to safety. They don't go to the island. Now, a lot of us treat temptation, sexual sin in that way. Let's tie ourselves to the church pew or let's tie ourselves to this or let's tie ourselves to that. So that, you know, our heart is just longing for it and we can't, we want it with everything. We just can't get to it because we put these restraints. I think we would agree that that's not the goal for us when it comes to sexual purity. Instead, we need to take the approach of Jason. Jason, another character in Greek mythology, uh, went on a journey and he knew he was going to pass this island of the sirens. And what he does is he takes with him. Orpheus, who was the best musician in the land. And his plan is to, when, when they reach this island, he's going to have Orpheus play his, play his heart out, play his glorious music, and drown out the music of the sirens. And that's what he does. And he's delighted. Jason is so delighted, so taken by the music of Orpheus that he doesn't even recognize the sirens. There may be a place... For tying ourselves up, right? Especially with sexual sin. Um, I'm not saying if you struggle with pornography, put something on your computer that keeps covenant eyes or whatever it is that filters or or keeps you off of those sites. But know that that's not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is that you would be so uh, enamored by the glory and beauty of God that you don't even don't even pay attention to what's there. But you might be asking, how do we find pleasure in God? What are some practical ways that we can allow the pleasure of God to trump the pleasure 
the other pleasures that are, that, that are out of whack in our lives. I've got four little helps. The first is uh, read. Read the Bible. Imagine this. Let's say there's a couple. They're on their first date. And they're just sitting kind of goo-goo-eyed at each other, just looking and gazing, and their hearts are fluttering. And they're just sitting looking at each other. And then one of them asks, so, where did you grow up? And the other one says, shh, stop. Don't talk. Let's, let's just enjoy this moment. Now, I think we could pretty, pretty quickly we'd realize this relationship is going nowhere. And they are just fu- being fueled on a very superficial kind of, you know, infatuation. When we, when we say, oh, I love God and I, you know, I love warm spiritual fuzzies, and yet we neglect how he's communicated himself to us, we're like the, the boyfriend that just says, shh, I don't, I don't really want to know about you. I just want what the sort of touchy feelings that you provide me with. So read the Bible. And hey, reading the Bible is difficult. Um, I'm going to maybe explain how we can how we can be helped in this, and just actually in, in a in a couple points from now. But I'll come back to that. And not only the Bible, but read books by other Christians. We, I just looked at the library this morning. We've got a lot of there's a lot of good books in the bookstore that's back there. Read some of those books. To help you understand who God is. Number two. So read. How do, how do we find pleasure in God? Read. Go outside. Go outside. God has revealed himself in scripture. But he's also revealed himself through what he's created. And just being out in the beauty of creation. Can help us to enjoy God more. If you have trouble seeing beauty in the world. Watch a Terrence Malick movie. Or listen to Rich Mullins. I'm kind of joking there, but, but actually I'm not. They, they see the beauty that is there, and they will help you see it. Um, be in community with people that enjoy God, too. So finding pleasure in God, you have to be in a community of people that are able to reinforce the beauty of God. Any love that we have usually takes communal reinforcement. We have to have others around us liking that same thing, or we're just not going to like it. That's just who we were social beings. And that's just kind of who we are. Let me give you an example. We lived in Boston for a little a period of time. It was an exciting period for Red Sox baseball. Cause it was when it was one of the years we were there, they won the world series after 80, whatever years. So I always kind of liked the Red Sox just cause they were a historic traditional team. I like that. But when we moved out there, both my wife and I became fans. I mean, we, we followed them. We watched the games almost every game we saw. We uh, followed what was going on in the offseason, trades and free agency and all of that. The reason, I don't do that anymore, but the reason we did is because we were, we were in a community that supported that. It was something we could talk about with our, with our friends um, and even just complete strangers. Anybody was willing to talk about Red Sox baseball, even in cold New England. Um, so... We, we need that kind of reinforcement and being a part of a community that, that is striving to see the beauty of God helps in that regard. Practically here, what that means is attending Sunday morning gathering as well as being a part of a missional community where we fellowship together and learn more about who this God is and try to serve the community as well. And then uh, fight clubs as well. Smaller groups, two to three folks of the same of the same sex that meet together to 
help one another see uh, the glory of God and fight our sin, which is hence fight club. Also, back to what I said earlier, when I said reading the Bible is difficult, we'll read it with a group of people and it'll help you understand it better. And then finally, number four, how do we find pleasure in God? Consider hourly. This is the fourth reason. Consider hourly what Christ has done for you. And I'm going to close with this point. We want to see the beauty of God. If we want to see the beauty of God, we look to the most poignant expression of that beauty. And that is the image of the invisible God, Jesus Christ. Now, before we get to Jesus, I'm going to kind of wrap, tie things up with Joseph. Let's, let's just step back for a moment and consider a theme that's happening in this Joseph story. Have you noticed that Joseph keeps losing his clothes? I mean, you've got to wonder. And not only that, but his clothes keep getting him into trouble. You know, you've you've got to wonder why he's wearing them at all anymore. Because the cloak... <laughs> caused him to get beat up by his brothers and then it was evidence that he's he was evidence used that he was dead to his father and now his cloak uh has has him accused of of rape and really could be the end of his life but as we'll see it's not as painful as joseph's life seems god is with him and Joseph, he doesn't die in prison, which actually probably points to, to the Potiphar probably has an idea that his wife is just up to her old tricks and that Joseph is probably innocent in it. But not only does he not die, but he actually ri- rises up to be in charge of the whole prison. Right? I mean, Joseph's life is just this roller coaster of humiliation and exaltation. Right? Sold as a slave and then rises up to be an extremely powerful person in Egypt as a slave, but still powerful. And then he's thrown into prison and then he rises up and he's going to keep rising as we're going to see in weeks, in weeks to come. That's the theme of the Joseph story. Humiliation, exaltation. It's the theme of the Christian life. Uh, I think it's Hebrews or maybe Peter that says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will exalt you. So it's the theme of Christ's life, humiliation and exaltation. But God is, God is working with Joseph. In fact, it's through this forced stripping of Joseph's cloaks that Joseph is learning to lean on God. Walt, Bruce Waltke, a commentator, says that Joseph is learning to put aside his cloaks and trust the Lord to clothe him with dignity and honor. Now, like Joseph, we need to be stripped of our cloaks the things that we trust in. It doesn't have to be sexual, although it certainly could be. It could be, it could be education. It could be um, success at work. It could be success as a parent. It could be a whole host of things. But we're all trusting something. We're all clothing ourselves falsely. If God is gracious, he's going to remove those cloaks. He's going to remove those fig leaves. And he's going to, um, he's, he's not going to leave you unclothed, right? That's the good news. He's not just going to leave you unclothed. Jesus was clothed lavishly. And yet, he let it all go. He put aside all of the glory and wealth that he had as, the, as being within the Godhead. And he let that go, and he came and he served And he died, and he was raised to life so that we might be clothed in him, in Christ. And when we're clothed in Christ, we're free to live life 
as we ought. We're free to enjoy the pleasures of God. And we're free to submit our sexuality in, in every sphere of our life to the bright, blazing supremacy of Christ. I'm going to close with this admonition from John Piper. He says, I have a picture in my mind of the majesty of Christ, like the sun at the center of the solar system of your life. The massive sun, 333,000 times the mass of the earth, holds all the planets in orbit. Even little Pluto, 3.6 billion miles away. So it is with the supremacy of Christ in your life. All the planets of your life, your sexuality and desires, your commitments and beliefs, your aspirations and dreams, your attitudes and convictions, your habits and disciplines, your solitude and relationships, your labor and leisure, your thinking and feeling, all the planets of your life are held together in orbit by the greatness and gravity and blazing brightness of the supremacy of Jesus Christ at the center of your life. If he ceases to be the bright, blazing, satisfying beauty at the center of your life, the planets will fly into confusion. A hundred things will be out of control, and sooner or later they will crush into destruction. Let's pray. Father, we don't, we don't want the components, the aspects, the pieces of our lives to fly into confusion and ultimately be destroyed. We want to find salvation. We want to find salvation in the fullest sense of that term. And we know uh, that it comes only through Christ. And so we pray that you would help us to cling to him. If we haven't, if we haven't come to faith before, if we, we don't, this is our first time in a church. Um, I pray that, that your spirit would nudge people, those folks, to Christ so that they can uh, order their lives around, around you, your glory, beauty, and uh, supremacy. We need your help, and we ask for it. In Christ's name, amen.